0: You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod.
1: Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System, and I want to start out by saying a huge thank you to all of our dedicated listeners. And of course, I want to say a big thank you to the Walter and Jean Boak Global Autoimmune Institute for their ongoing support to make this podcast possible. Now, I'm very excited today because I have my co-host, Joanna McMahon, in the studio with me. Welcome, Joanna. I'm so glad you could join me today. Hi, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. Of course. I wish it was all the time. <laughs> Definitely. So today's podcast is dedicated to our wonderful patients and families at Children's National. A few months back, you probably remember that we did a Hot Topics podcast answering some of the most common questions that we get in clinic. And during that time, we asked all of our listeners to please send us some more questions. You guys must have loved it so much because we got tons and tons of questions. So this, this is your time when you're going to get all of those burning questions answered.
0: Yes, we've compiled another great list, and as always, if you think of others during this broadcast, make sure to email them to us at celiac at
1: childrensnational.org. All right, Adriana, let's dive right in with the first question. Now, we get this question all the time, so it's super important. The uh, listener says, does my entire house have to become gluten-free to make it safe?
0: So my answer to this would be definitely not. Um, I, I actually don't keep my entire house gluten-free. My husband is not gluten-free, um, but yet my I am, and I mostly keep the children to some extent gluten-free. Um, since I'm the cook, I definitely make most of my uh, dinners and everything I prepare gluten-free. But the big thing that's really important about this is that you can easily live in a safe place, as making it a safe kitchen with just some protocols in place. Um, just making sure you really think through your storage and making sure that you keep all of your gluten-free products separate and that you store all of your gluten-free products over your non-gluten-free products, so you don't want anything to fall over and contaminate that expensive bag of gluten-free flour.
1: Absolutely. Um, (laughs) Definitely
0: not. Uh, The other thing is just making sure that you go through your, your cooking utensils and your cutting boards and things like that and making sure that we actually have glass ones, um, our glass cutting boards, to make sure there's no place for uh, the cutting board to get worn away um, and any crumbs hidden any place. We also make sure that we clean out our microwave very often um, in case anything spills over. You don't want anything that was non-gluten-free that went in that microwave to then drip into your gluten-free product um, as it gets hot and steamy in there. The other thing is that we have separate sponges. Um, I actually use those Swedish dishcloths because they dry really fast and they're really easy to use. Um, so, I and they can be di- different colors. So, I keep like a red one for my gluten free stuff and like a green one for my uh, non gluten free. But the other thing you could do is just um, make sure you stick your sponge in the dishwasher at the end of the day. So, those are all just some things that you can go through and get yourself trained on preparing things. Um, separately or keeping, you know, cross-contamination issues, um, at bay. Um, the other huge thing when it comes to preparation, um, is just, as I said, training yourself. Like for instance, when I'm making a sandwich for my son, that's not gluten-free. Um, A, I make sure I keep it on a separate plate so it never goes on my countertop. Um, the other thing is that after I prepare his non-gluten-free sandwich, I make sure that I wash my hands before I prepare something for myself. Um, So it's just kind of training yourself to take that extra step in between things.
1: That's so good, Joanna. There were so many steps you just mentioned in there that, you know, are so important to think about. You know, in my house, two of us are gluten-free and two aren't. And I just keep the whole house gluten-free because I find it difficult to remember all of those amazing steps that you just outlined. Um, But I think either way, you can make it work. And that those are some really good tips for making sure how to keep things safe Great. so our next question is about 504 plans um our listener says what is a 504 plan and do i need one for my child
0: well this is a question that we get a lot and it does definitely depend on the school and age of your child um however I would think that, for the most part, it, it, it can always be, always be beneficial. Um, it's just an extra layer of protection. A legal protection is the key word there. Um, basically, it's a document that um, goes through with accommodations for your child. To um, and, and the definition of a 504 plan is essentially that it relates to anything that um, affects quality of life or any um, main um ability to thrive essentially so um a life function so obviously with celiac disease you're looking at a major life function that it affects your ability to eat (laughs) (laughs) absolutely (laughs) that's a pretty big one
1: (laughs) we do it multiple times a day
0: (laughs) exactly exactly so um You want to make sure that um, the benefits of a 504 plan is that it goes through with your child through all of their academic school year um, and and through grade levels. So it will follow them through school so that... um, you do have to go in annually to re-up it. Um, And that's also a good thing because it gives you the opportunity to see any lapses that might have occurred or just things that you didn't think of the first time around that you can then renegotiate the following year. Um, But then at least once a new teacher gets your child in their classroom, um, they have this document in front of them from the very beginning. So it helps educate them on celiac disease and be aware from the very first day that your child has these accommodations in place. So, those are some of the benefits. Um, so, basically, um, even if your school is extremely accommodating um, at this time, this at least takes that worry in the future out of place. So, for instance, uh, an administrator leaves. That happens all the time. You have this 504 plan already in place, so you don't have to worry about. Um, things changing because this administrator is no longer there for you to work with.
1: That's a great point. So just to clarify, the 504 plans only apply to schools that are federally funded, right?
0: Yes, that is true. So public schools only.
1: So now what happens if a child goes to a private school?
0: They unfortunately have to work individually with their administrations, and we are at least um, advocates that can work with you to provide training or at least discussions with that administration team. However, they are not legally obligated to accommodate your child, unfortunately.
1: So the bottom line is that whatever kind of school your child goes to, um, if you need help with setting up a 504 plan or an accommodation plan, depending on the type of school, you can always reach out to our team. Again, that email is celiac at childrensnational.org.
0: Definitely. And we're happy to help. Definitely. So another question that we had come in is, what is malting? And does it always mean something is not gluten-free?
1: That is a great question. So malt is actually a sweetener that's used in different types of food and drink products. Um, Most often, malt is made from barley, which is unsafe for a gluten-free diet. So if you see malt on an ingredients label, it's most often not safe. So unless it outlines what the grain was that was malted, and it it could be sorghum, or it could be rice – don't purchase it unless you're certain that the grain was a gluten-free grain. So what – okay, so to people ask all the time, you know, like you see malted sorghum used in things like gluten-free beers. So how does that happen? Because everybody always thinks that if you're malting something that it's inherently not gluten-free. But you can actually malt any grain. And there's a very distinctive process that a grain goes through to take it from being a grain into a sugar. So the first step is that it gets soaked. And what the soaking does is it causes the grain to germinate or to to grow. Um, And as part of this process, certain starches in the grain start to change their forms and they become different types of sugars. And once these sugars develop, uh, people, the producers stop the germination process by drying the grains with really hot air. And then it's become extremely sweet and you can use it in different types of preparations. So you'll often see um, malted syrup as an ingredient in cereals uh, like Rice Krispies, for example, which we'll talk about in a second. But they, the producers have used the malted grain to sweeten the cereal. So again, um, most often malt is, when you see malt, it's made from barley, but there are lots of producers who are starting to malt gluten-free grains. So it'll be interesting to see over the next few years if that assumption that malt is not gluten-free is going to change and the labeling of it changes too.
0: So just one thing to clarify, if you see something listed as malted, but the product says it's certified gluten-free, what should you do?
1: In that case, they've malted a grain that is gluten free, so they can. You can malt anything, so you don't have to. You know, for example, there are products that use malted strawberries. It's it's still this process of changing the structure of uh, the ingredient and drying it into some in, with hot air. So you could you could malt corn or rice or sorghum or any of these other gluten free grains. It's just not as common. But if it's been certified as gluten-free, then it's been tested and it does not contain gluten. Awesome.
0: So that means essentially as long as you see it listed on a gluten-free product, you should know it's safe. Exactly. Awesome.
1: Now, let's go back to Rice Krispies for a minute because this is a question that we get all the time. So, <laughs> oh, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> for a hot second, Kellogg's did make a gluten-free Rice Krispies, but that is no more. They are no longer available, um, and Rice Krispies in the blue box are not gluten-free. So do not be confused by them. They are not gluten-free, and it does not say that anywhere on the package. So for all of our listeners out there, Rice Krispies are not safe for a gluten-free diet. However, there are many Rice Krispie-type cereals that are not the traditional brand that are gluten-free. I know you can find many of them at Whole Foods, and they are made using completely safe ingredients. So just make sure that you are picking a crispy rice cereal that is actually gluten-free.
0: And that goes for Rice Krispie treats, too, then, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, at least Starbucks has that marshmallow dream bar. That's gluten free. Those are delicious. Oh my goodness. I I take Amtrak a lot. And when I'm on Amtrak, that is my survival food. I mean, every Amtrak train has them. So you can always um, rest assured that you can find one of those gluten free, crispy, ricey, marshmallowy bars on the train
0: breakout, or any Starbucks,
1: as I said. <laughs> exactly. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit. You know, we're always playing on our phones, which is not necessarily a good thing, but the good news is that there are now lots of gluten-free apps available for different smart devices. Do you have any favorites that you use? Um,
0: well, obviously ours. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yes, definitely love ours. Um,
1: which is the Gluten-Free but- Diet Digital Resource Center, for anyone wondering. Yes
0: new favorite one is the gluten-free scanner um because that one is just so easy to use i mean basically you download it and then it has an automatic scanner and you can just scan any product in the grocery store and it comes right up in its database and tells you if it's gluten-free or not Um, it just takes all of the guesswork out of shopping
1: (laughs) so is that like a replacement for reading labels or do you still look at the label
0: well, I always double-check because, obviously, you want to make sure that you just train yourself to know and be aware of those ingredients, um, and also just because you don't want to ever, ever rely on just technology or a computer database to, you know, tell you that something's safe. Absolutely. But um, it's pre- it is pretty accurate. It is pretty accurate.
1: Great. So how about any of the restaurant finder apps? Do you use any of those?
0: I do use Find Me Gluten-Free. Um I also – I know there's the one from um, the for, for travel site
1: too, like the Dine one. Mm-hmm. Have you used that one, Vanessa? Yeah, I have. And I can't – okay, so we recently ran into a problem with one of these apps with a restaurant finder where we were driving down the road and looking for a place to stop to eat. We're in an area we were not familiar with. And my husband found a restaurant that was listed in one of these places. And so we, you know, jumped off the highway and stopped there because the kids were starving and we got in there and there was like nothing that was gluten-free. And so we were really upset about it and when he looked back at the list he had found, so it was listed in the app because somebody had written a review about it, not because it was a good place, but they had written terrible reviews about it, but it still came up listed. And so this was just a really good reminder to both of us that when you're looking at these apps, just because it's listed doesn't mean that it's good. It could mean that it's the complete opposite. So don't essentially rely on the list of places that comes up as being, yes, this, these are the you know, the next 10 places that are closest to me that I should go to. But in fact, they might be 10 places not to go to. So
0: you need to make sure obviously that you're reading the reviews.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Which, you know what's really funny? Yelp has actually been really helpful with that lately. Um, I actually found a really good place right off of Yelp just by Googling um, or putting into the search bar gluten-free, and then it comes up on the reviews that show you gluten-free restaurants. And um, we, in a similar situation, we were up in the mountains coming back from Pittsburgh, and we found this teeny little place, like right off the beaten track in the middle of the mountains, and I had an unbelievably amazing meal. So um, just, yeah, but reviews and actually making time, taking the time to read them is really helpful.
1: You know what I like about Yelp is that it allows the restaurant to tag itself as having gluten-free options, so when you see them, you immediately know that, okay, they're identifying that something that there is gluten-free, as opposed to some of these other apps where it's just is it it could be good or bad, but you don't really yeah. know without opening it up and investigating further which one it, it really is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The other thing that I recently um, realized, we're going to Mexico in February, and so I've started investigating the resort we're staying at and you know what the options are. So I was looking on TripAdvisor, and I never realized you could do this, but you can actually search by Gluten-Free on TripAdvisor to see reviews that people have written about gluten-free options at the resorts. Yeah. That, to me, was the most helpful thing because people were listing, like, different servers or managers to ask for, and they were saying exactly where things were, and, you know, you can go to any restaurant except for this one, or if you do go to this one, you're going to wait three hours, and it it was really, really helpful to be able to search through thousands of reviews quickly like that, so I really appreciated that.
0: That that is so awesome. That's really detailed, too, to, like, give you, like, really detailed information about it. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think people who write on TripAdvisor tend to be pretty detail-oriented. You know, if they're mm-hmm. going to invest the time to do it, then they, they really do a good job. So I really appreciated that. And I learned a lot. And I have a list, like, ready to go of exactly who I'm going to ask for when we get there. And, you know, they apparently have the best gluten-free bread. And people, like, stockpile it to bring home. So <laughs> we'll see how That's that goes. Awesome. Bring That's an extra awesome. suitcase. <laughs> there
0: you go. There you go. All right. So switching gears again. Um, so now we have a question about uh, one of our family members tested positive for the celiac gene. Does that mean they will definitely get it?
1: That is an excellent question. So there are multiple genes that are involved with celiac disease: the HLA DQ2 and the DQ8, and. It does not necessarily mean that you will get celiac disease just because you are a carrier. So you could have a single copy of one, you could have a double copy of one, or you could have one of each. And different combinations put you in different risk categories for developing celiac disease, but what we know is that if you don't carry either of the genes it's incredibly unlikely that you will go on to develop celiac disease. If you carry them, which about 40% of the population, I me, carries these genes, but only about 3% of them will go on to develop celiac disease. So it's a very small percentage of the actual genetic carriers that go on to get the disease. Uh, but researchers are definitely still looking more closely at this and risk factors beyond the gene that either trigger the disease or help them better, well, that will help them better identify who is going to get it.
0: Hey. Really interesting. I mean, that's a high percentage of people to even be carriers than you like more than you would think. So I'm really excited to at least actually find out more about that in the future.
1: Well, well, Um, the thing I think is really interesting is that the these particular genes are are prominent in many populations in the world. But what's interesting is that the disease tends to express itself more prominently. In areas, of course, where where gluten is consumed. So, uh-huh. like in India, for example, people in India carry the genes, but in different parts of the country, their diets are focused more heavily on rice. Where yes. but in others that's focused on wheat is where they're finding higher populations of people with celiac disease. So I think the food we eat definitely plays a large role in, you know, the, the disease expressing itself. Um, but I think there's still a lot of research left to be done, but I want to be a little bit more practical for people here. Um, yes. <laughs> so if you have a family member who tested positive for one of the genes or or both of the genes, what you should do is continue eating gluten. Well, first of all, get tested for celiac disease. And yes. if it's negative, don't stop eating gluten, you know, because you think you might get celiac keep a normal diet and if symptoms develop or at your annual physical, you know, just have them periodically run the exam or the blood test for celiac because we don't know what the triggers are necessarily or when somebody may develop it. So, you know, testing once in a while can't hurt or if you start developing symptoms, definitely get tested. Yeah. Um, The other thing is that the gene test is used for – is if somebody has gone gluten free because they you know, were having stomach troubles, let's say, and they felt better when they took gluten out of their diet, and then they go to the doctor and they wanna get tested. Well, in order to get tested, you have to be eating gluten, so they would need to do you know, a 10 or 12 week gluten challenge, which is not that simple for some people, especially if you're uncomfortable. So in those cases, the genetic test can be really helpful in identifying whether or not you're even at risk so for example if it was negative you would know there's a pretty unlikely chance that you have celiac disease um so you may want to start investigating other causes of the discomfort Mm,
0: that's really really helpful
1: so okay we're going to flip-flop again here and go back to talking about food labeling so joanna do different gluten-free labels mean different things? Uh, this question, this this listener says, I heard the certified gluten-free label meant it had less gluten than others. Is this true?
0: No. <laughs> so there is no difference in the gluten-free labeling. There's like So it doesn't mean like just because it says the word certified gluten-free that that has less gluten in it than just the GF label. Um, all of them – have to have the standard labeling law saying that they have to have less than twenty parts per million. So there is no way to get zero gluten in a in a product that's processed. Um, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> so uh, so but um, so you do at least know that anything that is labeled gluten free has to have less than twenty parts per million um, and all researchers have shown that that is a safe level of gluten for you to ingest without having or experiencing any symptoms or doing any damage. Um, So it is perfectly safe to consume any gluten-free labeled product. um, And they are all, does not matter what they look like if it's GF or a little like, you know, circle with the line to the wheat label or anything, they all mean the same thing.
1: Got it. Very helpful.
0: Um, Okay, so I think this is our last question that we have that came in. Um, So I heard that celiac patients might not have immunity to the hepatitis B vaccine. What does that mean, and how can I check if it applies to me?
1: So yes, this is actually something that was published in the Best Practices paper in Pediatrics um, a couple years back. And what they found is that many patients with celiac disease actually did not develop immunity when they were given the Hep B vaccine as a child. So now the standard of care is that when um, a child is diagnosed or an adult um, with celiac disease, that the physicians should check to make sure that they have immunity to hepatitis B. So it's it's part of the blood screening that happens in the clinic um, that we do regularly. And you know if your child hasn't been checked. Then I would definitely recommend um, either speaking to the pediatrician or to their GI at their annual visit.
0: Mm, interesting.
1: Yep, it definitely is. You know, it's it'll be interesting to see over time what else we learn about um, how celiac works. You know, I think that we're still sort of in the infancy of research into the disease. So, I'm interested definitely. to see what things look like ten years from now
0: it that's just, I think in general, autoimmune is just such a, a mystery. And um, it's just, I, I find it absolutely um, just um, amazing, the stuff that we do continue to find out every year, that we just continue to make so many more advancements in understanding it,
1: at least. Absolutely. And also, you know, we talk all the time about related autoimmune conditions to celiac disease. And I think the, the thought process was before is that, if you have if you're diagnosed with celiac and you gl- go gluten-free that then you're protecting yourself from developing autoimmune other autoimmune conditions or other complications but i'm not sure that that's entirely true we we hear from our patients all the time that they've developed 10 years later thyroid disease um yeah. so you know i think there is still a lot of research needing to be done and i'm so fascinated to see what comes in the future definitely so a challenge to all of you researchers out there, you know, keep the good information coming.
0: <laughs> definitely, definitely.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, we are out of time for today. So I want to say one more thank you to the Walter and Jean Boak Global Autoimmune Institute for their support. And thank you to Joanna for joining me today. And Of course. I hope that you all enjoyed today's podcast and we will talk to you again next time.